Hi, my name is Joe Jackson. I'm a journalist, author, interviewer, and broadcaster. I also happen to be a lifelong Elvis fan who, at the age of nine, read his life story in a comic book and decided that if he, as a former truck driver, which is what my dad was, could become what people call the king of pop, then I myself could do or be just about anything, such as, say, a journalist. And as it transpired, it was, and how's this for a savage irony, Elvis's death on August 16, 1977, that led to the birth of my career as a journalist. On the morning after he died, I read seven or so newspaper obituaries for the man and then phoned the editor of a magazine for which I worked as a photographer and I said, nothing I've read gets even close to capturing what Elvis's death means to lifelong fans such as myself. May I try to write for our magazine such an article? I did, and in fact I wrote two other articles on the same subject for the same issue of that magazine, and suddenly, at least in Ireland, I was what someone called an overnight success. Tellingly, the most successful of those articles was one in which I wrote about growing up as an Elvis fan. I then decided to write a book on that subject, but it's never been finished. Partly because I set out to track down not only world-famous musicians such as Bono and Nick Cave and Dory Previn to talk about the influence Elvis had on their lives and art, I also wanted to talk with people who actually knew the man, and I did, be it Sam Phillips, Gordon Stoker, June Monico, whoever. If you're an Elvis fan, you'll know how much of a joy that must have been to me, and would be perhaps to you. Likewise, circa 1996, when after interviewing Elvis's lifelong buddy, Memphis DJ George Klein, for the first time in 89, briefly, for a radio documentary, the man invited me to go for dinner with him in a Memphis restaurant, where we could have a real in-depth chat about the king. It lasted two and a half hours. And the part I want to upload in this podcast is the point at which we talked about what I still believe are the greatest recordings ever made by Elvis Presley. Those recorded in Memphis in early 1969, including In the Ghetto, Gentle on My Mind, and Suspicious Minds. By the way, if you want to gain access to the full tapes for personal or professional use, for example, in a documentary, contact me via my website, joejacksoninterviewer.com. Right, so you don't see a deterioration in the music. You know, I, I'm... Well, no, I just see a, a guy showing that he could... Do think he was more versatile than people gave him credit right, for. Right. He wanted to show that he could sing. Because actually, after he proved that, he came back to Memphis in 69, that session with Chips Moment, where he sang Dirty Dirty Feeling and Stranger Moment, all those great blues right, sounds. Made, and he song. showed that he could really sing. Anybody, right. baby, right. baby, what you, bam, what's that Jimmy Reed song? Baby, you what, got you want, yeah, baby what do you want me to do? Yeah, and, person, and he did that. Uh, Stranger in my hometown. Plus, he did another one, that old Chuck Willis thing. Uh, with, uh, oh, we did feel, feel so, bad. so bad. We did that back in the early 60s. Yeah, but which I mean, great. yeah, right. But then, see, when he came with Chips, he did all those great songs like Sus Suspicious Minds, Kentucky Rain, In the Ghetto, Don't Cry Daddy. But then he also showed, because he had that band there that he knew could back him up, they did that four or five of those blues songs. Well, what I just said, Stranger in right. my hometown. When it rains, it pours. Cherry Butler's only the strong survive. Yeah, I was there with you in my heart. I tell you what, only the strong survive to be hit again. Chip's moment says, give him that song. We can go back in the studio and put a new track on it. Yeah. And do some tweaking up. He yeah. says he can make that a top ten record. You were there. You were you you were part instrumental in setting up the uh, Memphis yeah, sessions, right? Yeah. Why? How come? What did Elvis want to record in Memphis? No. Or was it just the Chips? 
that had all those big hits with uh, Mambus Artists? With it's a long actors? story, oh, Joe. Okay. I'll make it short. Uh, we are at Graceland, 1969. Elvis is real hot again with the 68 special in Vegas. And Felton is there, and they're talking about recording in Los Angeles. I'm going to give you a short version, because okay. someday okay. if I write a book, it's a whole chapter. Right. Right. Marty Lacker right. tries to take credit for it, and I was the one that did it. Right. And what happened was, Felton, we're at the dinner table, and we're finishing up dinner, and the music publishers are there, Freddie Kingstock and Felton and everybody. And Elvis, we're supposed to do a session in L.A., but we can't get Hal Blaine. I'll never forget that. Right. Right. We can't get Hal. He's playing with so-and-so, and... -so and I think James may be, Burton may be so-and-so. And then I, I spoke up and I said, Elvis, can I say something? He said, what? And I said, and I'm not going to go the whole speech because it's all, okay. I made a long right. speech. Right. I, the, the gist of it was, you're the greatest, Elvis. This is ridiculous. Ten miles from your house is the hottest studio in Memphis. And, and on top right. of that, you're the greatest singer in the world and you're getting B-side material. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you don't know it, Elvis, but the songs are coming to the publisher, and the publisher's saying, give him his half before they give it to you. So consequently, these great songwriters said, no, I don't have to give Elvis half anymore. I'll give it to somebody else. I'll record it myself. Right. And Elvis blew up at that. He said, I don't care where the songs come from. He said, I want to be to decide the one who gets half of what. He said, let me decide if I want to record a song first. He said, if we get half of it, fine. If we don't, forget it. And he said, on second, George is right. Hot student Memphis, hell, let's cut here. And, that's, right. and, and right after that, Felton came over and hugged me. Oh, bless your heart, I was in the middle, George. I'm a, I was working for Colonel and Elvis and RCI. I couldn't say anything. I'm glad you said right. it. Right. Uh, that was like on a Friday. He was recording at American on that Monday night. Really? And he went in and cut all had those songs. Did he not realize that's what had been happening throughout the 60s on a lot of those deals? That he was getting songs that were part he, of He didn't package. know that he wasn't getting the material. Right. He, he couldn't understand why he wasn't getting good songs. Right. What it was... Uh, Say to Mac Davis, Neil yeah. Dime. I brought yeah. in the Grass Don't Paint on Mine from Neil oh, Dime. Right. I presented that to y'all. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Felton brought in the Mac Davis songs. And uh, right. Lamar Fike brought in Kentucky Rain. Right. Uh, this is avoiding the system that was in place. Yeah, in other words, here was the deal. This, this is Colonel Parker right here. This is Elvis. This is Colonel Parker. This is the publisher. This is Freddie Beanstalk, Hill right. and Range Music. Right. Colonel Parker. This is Elvis. Right. I'm a little songwriter. I come up there and I approach them. You had to go through them to get to Elvis. I got these songs for Elvis. Yeah, well, what you got? Well, I got uh, Sweet Caroline. I got Holly Holt. Right. Well, not bad songs. You're a good songwriter, Neil. But we got to have 50% of the writers and 50% of the publisher. Neil Diamond says, forget it. He goes over here and he records it himself or he gives it to somebody else where he gets all the writers and all the publishing. Sure. So consequently, the songwriters who weren't that great were bringing inferior songs to Beanstalk. Beanstalk was getting half the publishing part of the writing or whatever. Then the final of the song, would, he would go to the Colonel and say, okay, we got these fellas, we got business deals on them. And finally the songs would get to Elvis. And Elvis couldn't understand why he was getting bad right. material. And right. I told him. Everybody was scared to tell him. I said, it's because, Elvis, Beanstalk is demanding half of the writers and some of the, I mean, half of the publishers, or all of the publishing, and some of the writers. And in this day and time, Elvis, bless your heart, you, you're heading on the charts. Yeah. And so consequently, the, the great songwriters are scared to bring songs to Hill Range, like Love and the Feeling, Barry Mann and Cynthia yeah. Lyle, or, or uh, Neil Diamond, right. or, or the great writers, because, Elvis, they don't want to give half 
all the pub or all the publishing away. They these guys may have been working six months on one song. I know. Yeah. You know, yeah. like Mark James, yeah. he he worked, he would work. And I've read where other writers, yeah, you've heard of writers writing a song in twenty and thirty minutes, but some writers work six months, months on a song, yeah. months yeah. and months yeah. into it. Their yeah. blood, sweat, and tears yeah. into it, yeah. and they don't want to give half of it away, man. You sure. Know? Yeah. So Greenstock yeah. was that buffer. He was right. money hungry, right. Right. and it was hurting. It was hurting the good songs. You, the good, the guys couldn't get around to get the Elvis with the songs. See, right. they had to right. go through them, then through the Colonel. Right. Colonel would say, "Well, how much we got in the song? Well, we got fifty percent. How much of writers we got? We got twenty-five. Okay, present it to Elvis. All right, right, right. If it had none of it, he said, "No, nah, I don't present it to Elvis." So what? I mean, Sam said to me, "You know the Elvis's reaction? I'm not going to put strings on a rock and roll record." Well, I mean, even some of the Atlantic stuff had strings. Was there any way, Sam said that to him, strings were Tin Pan Alley and nor the North, New York music. And he, would have to, he said he'd say to Elvis, you know, this is the South, it's blues rooted, it's folk music, we play guitars, we don't use them, use drums. Stick with what you know. Maybe that's where Elvis got that, because I remember I'd mentioned to, to him about the Conway Twitty strings and yeah. all. Yeah. And he said he wasn't going to put strings. So he never told me that, but maybe that's, that's where he got it right, from Sam. Right. But he did like Sinatra and that kind of stuff, or did he? Well, he, he, Sinatra was okay, but he wasn't a big Sinatra was fan. Was he not? Because oh, there are these stories of him in New York in, in, uh, when he was in the Army in 59, playing Willow Weep for Me at a piano, and saying he'd like to do those kind of Sinatra ballads, which he then did do moody or ballads when he came out of the Army. But he wasn't a big yeah, Sinatra fan. Yeah, no, he, he was. He was more of a, you know, black blues. I mean, he, he was more of a Roy Hamilton Jackie Wilson, uh, Tony Williams and the Platters uh, type fan. Jake Hess, the kind of. Jake Hess, Clyde McFadder. Uh, uh, they stayed his yeah. music, he still He, he liked Dean Mark. Right. And Perry Como. Right. I mean, he knew that they were good singers, obviously. Right. But he was more influenced by Dean Martin than anybody in that, in that yeah, situation. Yeah, in the ballad side. If you right. listen to a lot of ballads, you can hear Dean Martin. Well, Dino had done a version of It's Now or Never called There's No Tomorrow on an Italian album in 58. My dad had that. I didn't know that. Yeah, so I mean, there was that bass. I don't know. Elvis told me he heard it in, in, in Europe when he was in the Army. Right, right. What? Okay, tell me a wee bit more about the music. I mean, what you were, were you influ influencing him, Manny, to listen to stuff you'd be playing? I mean, because you were maybe more in touch with what was going down musically. Than well, he, he uh, from the 60s into the 70s. Well, you see, what, he, what I did when he was in the Army, from, from 58 to 60, he asked me to do him a favor. And what I would do, since I had access to all the new records, and they were really about almost a year behind musical Germany. So I would, every every two weeks or so, I would box up about 20 or 30 records and mail them to Germany. And then he kept up with what was happening, music-wise. Uh, but then when he came home, he did it himself. He, he, he was pretty sharp. He knew what was happening music-wise. He just didn't like the psychedelic stuff, you know, the screaming guitars and... Do you think that a lot of people think that the Memphis sessions and that were really musically the peak, one of the peaks of his career? Oh, undoubtedly. Better than Sun. Oh, yes. If you if you listen to uh, what do you thirty something songs with chips, 34, 35, 33s. If you listen to those songs, uh, artistically, singing wise, production wise, musician wise, they're awesome. 
in the course, I never will forget, they said, can we ask you a question? And I said, yeah. They said, were you there when Elvis did all those Chips Moment sessions in America? And I said, yeah, I was responsible for a lot of it. They said, man, we've been listening to Elvis records for 20 years, you know, since 1956. Is that when RCA bought his contract? 55, 56? So this was, this would have been, Elvis passed away in 77. So this would have been 20 something years later. And they said, of all the songs we've listened to, from Hound Dog to Heartbreak Hotel, the Chips Moment sessions were so well produced, so well sung by Elvis, so well mixed, so well performed, that it, it, just, it just jumps out of the speaker when you play, or you play uh, Moving On. Moving on. Yeah, it just jumps out of the speaker, and it sounds so fresh. And I said, well, part of that is because Elvis was ready to sing on those. He was ready to go in and cut. Part of that is you have some extremely talented musicians. Part of that is you have a great, great producer who does not follow any trends. He was like Sam. Chips would not follow a trend. Chips moment always said, are we recording? That I may not always cut a hit record, but every record I cut is good. What he meant was, my records are going to have to stand up after I'm gone. So I don't want to put out a piece of schlock. I'd rather not release it than release a, a record that's not ready to be released. So I'm going to work real hard, and I'm going to produce the record really well, and I'm going to spend hours and hours in the studio mixing it down until it's exactly right. Then I'm going to listen to it and listen to it before I release it. Because once it's out, I can't change it. So I may not put a hit record out every time, what I put out is going to be good records. And if you go back and you listen to such things as Holly Holy and Sweet Caroline and Dusty Springfield in Memphis, you know, Son of a Preacher Man, and yeah. Wilson Pickett, Funky Broadway, and uh, some of that stuff that he did, you know. Box Tops, of Box Tops, The Letter, and uh, B.J. Thomas, uh, Hooked on a Feeling, and uh, uh, all that stuff. You can just hear that it's well produced. Right. And so, consequently, uh, I think that had a lot to do with the fact that the Chips Moment Sessions, all those songs, with the exception of a few, are really sound good today. But is that the first time Elvis, because Sam Phillips told me that he said to Elvis, when Elvis was having trouble with Steve Shells at the outset, produce your own stuff, you know what you want, you, you've learned from the master, do it yourself. Isn't Chips Moment one of the first people that Elvis handed it over to? And he said, okay, I'll sing, you produce. Yeah, because uh, by that time, Elvis had the smarts, had the sense to recognize a good producer. Right. In other words, here's a guy, look at his track record, what he's done. He, yeah. he wrote this time for Troy Shondell. Right. Uh, he produced uh, The Righteous Brothers, Dion Warwick, Dusty Springfield, The Box Tops, uh, right. uh, all these great acts. Right. So Elvis knew this guy oh, had his work. act together. And also, he was a Memphis guy. He was a Memphis guy, right, 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 and, and all, right. all the musicians were Memphis guys. So Elvis didn't feel right. boxed in by that Nashville click sound. Or the Hollywood so, Or the Hollywood, or the Nashville. He was back home, right. and he felt he felt relaxed. Did he? Was he as aware of that fact that he was back in Memphis yeah, recording? sure. Because it, it, he didn't like to record in Nashville. It was just convenient, and RCA had a studio there. Right. He didn't like to record in New York, but it was convenient, and RCA had a studio there. And Hollywood, he kind of sort of liked it because he did it at radio recorders. He didn't do it at a big RCA studio. Right, right. And that guy Thorny in the engineer was pretty good. Right, right. And uh, they left people like Chet Atkins and that 
behind the scenes didn't really like him from the beginning. Well, okay, that I don't know how to say that. But see, Elvis told me that Sam Phillips gave him the greatest advice he ever got in his career. And I said, what was that, Elvis? And he said, Elvis, don't let him change you. When you go to Nashville to record at RCA, you do just what you said a while ago. You learned the Memphis sound. You stay Elvis Presley. Don't try to sound like a Nashville singer. All right. So the very first session, when they went up to do Heartbreak Hotel, and uh, I was the one. I was the one. I think my baby, my baby left me. Uh, Elvis said that it was just him and Scotty and Bill. And Nashville didn't know what to expect. And Chet Atkins was overseeing the session. And Chet Atkins walked over, supposedly. I don't want to, I like Chet Atkins. He's been very nice to me, so I don't want to say anything bad about Chet Atkins. But what happened was, Chet Atkins didn't know what Elvis was about either. So Chet, Scotty is there doing his little thing with his guitar. And here he is in awe of Chet Atkins. Because Chet Atkins is Mr. Guitar. So... Chet Atkins walks over and makes a suggestion to Scotty. Well, Elvis had remembered what Sam had told him. So in a very nice, courteous way, he said, Mr. Atkins, we have our own sound. We appreciate any input, but we really have our own little sound. And that kind of created a little bit of friction there. But it, 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 over, the year, over the years, it was overcome. But Elvis did that, and it was hard for him to do that. But he had to do that to protect his own sound. Right. Because RCA didn't know how to do the slapback echo. Right. They right. put a speaker at one end of the hall, I think a microphone at the other end of the hall, tried to create that echo sound. Echo. Yeah. And uh, they didn't understand that Elvis could get, sound like six musicians with just three. Yeah. You know, his little old band sounded like, he yeah. made a lot of music for three guys. Sure. For two guys, he yeah. made a lot of music yeah. on yeah. his first Sun Records. Right. Right. And then later on, they tried to create that Sun sound. Yeah. They never really captured it. Uh, and then when Elvis came did back... did Elvis want the sun sound again? No, I think he wanted he to progress. To he wanted to progress a little. He, he didn't want to stay a little, yeah. you know, a little box sound. He wanted to... But what about the suggestion that he had wanted to do more ballads at Sun and Sam and he just didn't see eye to eye on that or even release more ballads? Because, I mean, the first, second cut he did at RCA was I Was the One, a wonderful doo-wop kind of... Yeah, right. Classic. I, I don't know about that. I, right. I, honestly don't know. I know that... I think it was DJ Fontana said that may have been part of the agenda, but the other thing was that all the songs started flooding into him. Yeah. He could pick New York too. Well. Yeah. He could pick Southern yeah. Rock. He could pick whatever he wanted. That's but he, that but he may shaped be the sound himself. Yeah, I think so. And the irony was he also changed the sound of Nashville in the process. Yeah. He killed he killed country music for about two years. So, yeah, yeah. Didn't country they set up the CMA to kind of fight yes. against yeah. the influence he was having? How did he feel about that? Well, uh, it hurt his feelings because he had he had admired a lot of those yeah. country singers, yeah. Yeah, and he and he'd been on the road with a lot of them in the early days, so like Farron Young yeah. and yeah. Hank Snow and those guys. And so he didn't know why they didn't like him. You know, right. he wasn't trying to hurt anybody. He was just doing his own thing. Right. Right. And so when that came about, I think it left a sour taste in his mouth about Nashville. Right. Well, the Jordanaires told me that they were taken to one side after recording. Yeah. And it wasn't the Jordanaires who recorded Heartbreak Hotel. It was Gordon plus a few and, other and the Spears. Yeah. Doc Spears. And but when the Jordanaires started singing with them, that somebody in the CMA or somebody said, you know, this isn't going to do your reputation any good here in Nashville to be singing that rock and roll stuff. Is that right? I didn't know that. So, I mean, you can see that was the reactions that were against him then.
Yeah, I didn't know that, but I knew that he wasn't extremely fond of Nashville, and I think a lot of it stemmed from being kicked off the ground at Opry, yeah. Yeah. And, the, and the fact of what you just said about they were kind of they were kind of uh, uh, they had this thing against Elvis because the, he had killed country music. So two, they were they scared. Were bring him in, yeah. soften the sound, and make him more like them. Yeah, yeah. They tried to put him in a Nashville box, but he never would get into it. Right. He would right. always do his own thing. Well, didn't he do Elvis's back in Nashville, and even that was dirty down home. Yeah. Song blues, yeah. reconsider, yeah. baby. He did it. See, right. because RC Studio was close to Memphis. Right. And you know, and, and he didn't have to go all the way to Hollywood or stop in New York. Right. He wanted to come right. home. Right. right. And then Nashville is only 198 miles, so. Right. Tell, tell me about the Memphis session when you brought to him something like the classic and the grass don't pay no mind. Did you like, you You got that from Neil Diamond, I assume, from his publishers? I got it from Neil himself. Neil Diamond, and he wanted to get a song to Elvis. Neil Diamond told me when he came to Memphis to record with Chip's Moment, he came by and did my TV show. I had a local TV show like American Bandstand for 12 years. And Neil and I became friends. He was Jewish, I was Jewish. I don't know if it had anything to do with it, but he knew that I was acceptable because I was at the sessions when he was recording. So I got him and his manager, who is now a big guy, I think, with Capitol Records, I forget who his name is, Tommy somebody, and uh, he came by and did my TV show, and he wasn't doing local TV, but he did my show, right. and um, in the course of the conversation, Neil is real shy, quiet guy. I met him just there now. He's kind of quiet. Very, very shy. And he insinuated to me that Elvis was one of his idols, right. and if he could get Elvis to record him his songs, it'd be the, he would just go crazy. So when I opened it up that night at Graceland and Elvis said the doors are open, I don't care where the songs come from, All right. I immediately went home that next day and I had Neil's home phone number. Right. And I called him in New York and I said, Neil, Neil. He said, what? And I said, Elvis says the doors are open. Have you got any? He said, yeah. And the very next day in the mail, they didn't have FedEx and I think it was UPI, UPS or something, right, right, right. came and the grass don't paint on mine. And I put it on the turntable at home and His listened to it. version of it. Him singing it. Neil was singing right. the demo. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. just a demo. Right. And uh, I listened to it. It was a deep song. I had to listen to it about yeah. five times right. before I finally got the meaning. Yeah. And then I took it out to Elvis. And Elvis listened to it a couple of times. He said, what's he talking about? And I explained the song to him. And he said, oh, that's a good song. How did you read it, though? What was your reading of the lyric that it was about? Well, I'd have to go back. It's been so many years now. Right. You'd have but, to go back to the lyric. In other words... The grass don't paint on mine. The world doesn't paint on mine. Do your own thing. Let's love each yeah. other. And, yeah. and not it's a very work. sensual song. Yeah, it's one right. Of the most sensual songs Elvis ever did. And I never will forget. Once I explained it to Elvis, I played it for him in his office upstairs at Graceland. He said, "Yeah, that's a great one." He said, "Play it for Chips and see what he thinks." So I never will forget. I went over the session, and Chips and the guys were playing cards. They were waiting for Elvis to come in, and they had a card game going on. And I said, "Chips, I just got a sign from Neil Diamond for Elvis." He said, "Put it on." That little rookie player, and I put it on, and it was a third of the way through, and Elvis said, and Chip said, that's a smash. <laughs> he, he was playing cards, and he said, that's a smash. <laughs> and they cut it that night. Yeah, were you there at the session? Yeah. Elvis and, did uh, sing it very, uh, very, very sexily, and very, and the whole arrangement with the voices imitated yeah. kind of sex, and imitated yeah. lovemaking. It was yeah. a beautifully kind of arranged. Yeah, it's one of those uh, forgotten gems, if you yeah. go back and pull it out and listen yeah. to it. Yeah. There's a lot. I'm, I'm finding a lot of that. Right. That thing called "It's Midnight," which is oh, a beautiful wonderful. song. Yeah, yeah. A lot yeah. of people are starting to discover those songs. Right, right. Uh, from from '69 onwards. Yeah. Right. Uh, a song now that fits perfect is "For the Heart," because those country people can dance to it now. All oh, right. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Hi, Joe Jackson here again. 
I thank you for listening to this edition of the Joe Jackson Interviews podcast. And don't forget, if you want to access the full tapes of this chat for personal or professional use, contact me via my website, joejacksoninterviewer.com.